Started this on my last episode with W2, having a sip of my favorite beverage. I've been fighting with this notion of writing out a script for my intros, and then I just decided I would have a glass of my favorite beverage and kind of just wing it. So excuse me while I take another sip. Today's today's beverage is a beautiful Sauvignon Blanc. Very nice. Hey, this is part two today of my interview with Graham Maybe, bassist Graham Maybe. And first, let me go back. You're listening to Friends in Music with me, Brian Doherty. I'm Brian, and I'm your host. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for here, uh, being here, taking the time to listen. I would love it if you would like and subscribe on your favorite platform and definitely share this podcast if you're so inclined my guest today is graham maybe as i said graham is an amazing bassist musician he's a great singer actually i didn't tell this story the last episode but i first noticed graham as i was washing dishes at the green lantern restaurant in dover new jersey which was my summer job and we would listen to the radio in the kitchen and Joe Jackson's first album was out and the thing that struck me outside of the songs was Graham's amazing bass playing and um, a couple years later I would be I would be living in Jersey City New Jersey and Graham would be Graham oddly enough even though he's from England ended up in Hoboken New Jersey the town right next door and we ended up meeting and working with a band called The Silos and then that was the beginning of our long relationship musical relationship and um, I always think back to like the fact that this, here was the guy that I was listening to on the radio when I was 16, 17 years old wondering where he you know how he got into the business who is this guy what a great bass player and then only a mere few years later I end up working with him and, and getting to know him and we uh, like I, I, as I said forged a long-term professional relationship uh, from the mid-80s on so Graham uh, this is part two in part one Graham just started telling us about how he met how he got into uh, Joe Jackson's band and more than that was how Joe kind of went from a cover um, cover, cover band to Kind of the, this this act who's going to sell you know this this songwriter who's going going to sell his songs and like have a band in a new wave setting. Uh, so let's listen to part two as Graham continues with the story. And here we go. Here you go. 
Oh, hang on. I got to What do I got to do? Make sure you're good to go. Yeah, I got to press a thing here. Okay. You good? Yeah. All right. Well, hi Graham. Welcome back. Hey Brian. To part two. Now, now in part one, if I can, if I can just remind you, in part one, we talked a lot about how you got started playing bass and how you play guitar initially, and uh, some of your earlier bands and some some of your early inspirations. And we we cut it off just at the moment where you were about to tell us about how you met Joe Jackson. Right. And so we want to pick it up from there. Sure. So um, I had seen this odd, skinny, gangly guy with stringy blonde hair at concerts. I, you know, there was a really great concert hall uh, in Portsmouth, and and I went there so many times to see some great shows. You know, it was one of those. It was the venue where everyone went to see the national acts. You know, right. so we saw everyone from Genesis to. Um, King Crimson. Uh, I saw the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon tour. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. incredible. So, and I would see this guy, you know, and we'd always kind of look at each other across the room. Kind of, I, this, is how, this is how I remember it. Anyway, we'd yeah. look at each other and we're like, who are you? You know, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> who the fuck are you? <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, um, so probably in like 1973 or four, I forget again probably 73, um, he, he had joined a cover band in Portsmouth and um, he was actually studying music at the Royal Academy of Music in London, which was a prestigious music school, one of the most prestigious music yeah. schools. Um, and, but he was a student, so he was broke. So he joined this local cover band. He would come home at the weekends and do gigs with this cover band. So he did that for a few months. And then the guys that started the band, who were old, much older, probably in their 30s or 40s, decided they were going to hang it up for whatever reason, you know, pressure from their wives or who knows. Yeah. So Joe said to them, well, can I keep the band going, even though you're not in it? And they said, sure, you know, knock your socks off. So then Joe was looking for people to, to repopulate the band yeah. and he had a couple of friends that he called in a friend of ours called mark andrews was the lead singer joe wasn't the lead singer he was the keyboard player and he must have known about me i can only assume from seeing me uh, he said he saw me at a gig but i had no idea what what gig what, what gig it was and it shocks me that he would <laughs> it shocks me that he would have been impressed enough yeah. to want me to be in a band. That's him. nice. Yeah. I can't tell you how shitty <clears throat> my early bands were. But anyway, so one day, you know, the doorbell rings and my mother comes up to my room and she says, there's this odd, strange looking fella at the door wants to speak to you, you know. So, yeah, I'm still living with my parents, you know. So I come down and there's there's that guy I'd seen at concerts, you know. So uh, he comes in and asks me to join this band, you know, and he explains, well, you know, there's work, the band's got work and, um, you know, we can probably make some money at the weekends and tells me that he's a music student. So the gigs would mostly be at weekends. And would I like to meet the other guys and decide if I want to do it? So that's, uh, that's exactly what I did. Very nice. And then we started gigging and, um, and you know, we were, it, it was, not an easy time to be in a in a band if you had any ambitions whatsoever 
And what, it makes Graham, people... <clears throat> Graham, what 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 year are we talking about here? Is this like seventy oh, six? This is this was in the disco days, <clears throat> okay, yeah. mid seventies. Yeah. So, um, but but we we would sneak an original song in here and there, you know. Yeah. And um, we 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 got better as well, you know. We we improved. We we got a better drummer, and uh, we you know, there there was the, the the lead singer Mark was writing songs. Joe was writing songs. And we, you know, we were we were really trying hard. And uh, I actually thought we were we were good and we were getting better. We found a manager. We finally got a little record deal, wow. um, which was good. But the deal was sort of a provisional deal where we'll let you make three singles, and if the singles do okay, then we'll let you do an album. Right. And uh, so we recorded. We and we actually had a producer, and we recorded at a couple of good. Uh, London studios, um, including Air Studios, which mm -hmm. we all know about because that was George Martin's new studio. And um, and I, I remember we were recording at Air and the, the, the room we were in was right across from the room that Jeff Beck's Blow by Blow had been recorded what in. Great album. I remember wow. we all we all kind of went over there. It was like going into a, a, a sacred, you know, yes. like a sacred space or something, you know. So we were very impressed by that. To be you know just to, to feel like some connection with greatness yeah. and um so all three of our singles bombed and the record label dropped us joe was so disgusted that he left the band and that it felt like we had a we had a break and 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 it didn't work out and that was it all right and um i was so disheartened i remember i sold my i i had bought a brand new jazz bass uh, that was my pride and joy and i was so I, th I really, I, I must have thought this is it. it. Yeah. And I, I sold it and I just went back to my day job. I was like a school gr groundskeeper. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I kind of like gave up on the whole thing for about two months. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, and then another, a, 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 a guy called Dave Houghton, who was in one of the really good local bands, asked me to join an, his new band. And so I had to go out and buy a new bass because I didn't actually have a bass. And um, Dave ended up being Joe's drummer because Joe, um, after he left the band that we were in together, he had begun writing songs in earnest and demoing them. Um, he was, Joe was working at the local Playboy Club and backing up cabaret artists to make some money. And he used all the money to make demos wow. of his new songs. And Dave, my new, bandmate Dave Houghton who was a phenomenal drummer and I was that, that's the only reason I bought a new bass is because I was so excited to work with him um we 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 uh, we ended up playing on Joe's demos and those demos were what got Joe his record contract a couple of years later wow well well getting getting back to Dave I've, I've mentioned this several times but Dave, Dave is one of my one of my all-time favorite drummers you know He's such a great, very musical. And you guys as a rhythm section were phenomenal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know how that happens rarely, but when it happens, you know, you, you play with someone and you just like lock in Yeah, and it just feels like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're the pair of shoes, you know, that, that, yeah. that makes the whole thing move, you know, anyway. Um, yeah. He's great. He's great. And, um, and, and, so we were, yeah, we were rhythm section for quite a few years there, maybe five years. 
So <clears throat> tell us, tell us about the early days though. So does, does Joe get a record deal? Are, are you guys playing clubs, um, opening for other bands? Uh, how, how does this all work out? Is it just the three of you? You have a, you have no, a guitar player. A, there was a guitar player too that Joe brought in. Um, he, he imagined it as a four piece with him, you know, Joe standing, <clears throat> Joe being the lead singer, standing, you know, fronting the band and gotcha. then, then running over and playing the occasional keyboard solo. Gotcha. So there was a guitar player called Gary Sanford. And um, when we, we made our first album, we, we literally, you know, Joe had, uh, Joe's demos ended up in the right hands and um, he, he, his demos were heard by a, a, a guy called David Kirschenbaum, who in 1978 was in London looking, scouting for A&M Records for quote unquote new wave talent. And he heard Joe's demos um, and wanted to sign him on the spot. And it was really within just a few weeks, we went from uh, uh, nothing to Joe calling me to telling me I could quit my day job to being in a top-notch recording studio in London called Eden mm -hmm. and recording <laughs> an album in a week or less than a week. Was, was, uh, what were the songs, uh, what were the demoed songs that, that got him signed? Any, they were any, basically any, the same, the, the very same songs that are on the, the, look, his Look Sharp. Look Sharp, right. Yeah. It's the same songs. Yeah. In fact, Joe's original intention was just to find someone to release the demos right. as they were. <clears throat> Right. But actually, it was a good decision to re-record them because they, you know, they needed a little polishing and yeah. they definitely got that. And um, how about yeah. um, so is she really going out with him was was yeah. one of the demos, too? That was yeah. one of them. Yeah. And uh, was that was that the first single? By the, the first way? single and it yeah. was a hit it was a hit yeah. right away and we were we we did play clubs in london we 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 played there were a few clubs like uh, the hope and anchor which was a pub in london that all the punk bands were playing at and there was another place called the nashville room mm -hmm. um and we we had actually had kind of like a residency at those mm -hmm. two places so we'd play every week um at those places once a week and then we were doing other gigs we, we got an opening spot on a tour, a national tour that ran for a few weeks in late 1978. And by the time we finished that tour, our single was in the top 20 in England. Wow. And the band we were opening for was less well known than we were. Yeah. Which wow. was very, very weird for everybody. That's so um, great. And then, um, and, and the, 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 the music press in Britain review we got just glowing reviews for the first album right instantly and you yeah. know you couldn't you couldn't have scripted it better really um and then uh within a few months we went on our first U.S. tour in the beginning of 79 and we were playing clubs but we were uh yeah we were ecstatic because we were on a real tour bus and we were you know living the dream you know? wow so you guys were really doing it, you know? We were really yeah. doing it. Just kind of, it all happened incredibly quickly. I'd like and, you to talk. So, so I, I'm, I've, when I was, when your first album came out, I was working at a restaurant in Dover, New, New Jersey as a summer, that was my summer job. And I remember hearing, you know, I listened to the radio all day. I was working in the kitchen and 
the songs were great. I really loved Joe's songs, but your bass playing has a certain representation. You know, it was it, it's put forth in the in those recordings in such a way that you're featured. Like you you are featured. The drums are featured, sure, but the bass is very very prominent. And so, can you speak to that? Can you give us some context? Um, was it intentional? Did it just happen? How did the pick? How did the picking come about? Um, and like, give us give us all that stuff. So before the record deal ever happened, um, after Joe left the band that that we had been in, where, where we had the the record deal that d- didn't work out, and Joe left the band and. And uh, we, we had stayed in touch and I knew he was writing songs and every now and again, he'd invite me over to play me some of the songs and we started demoing the songs. But around that time, I remember him telling me his concept for his band and his concept for his band was he wanted the bass to be the featured instrument. Wow. And he said, he said the world is sick of guitar solos. He said, the guitar is just going to be a rhythm instrument and you're going to be like up front. In, 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 the, in the construction and presentation of the songs. Oh, how, do you, how do you feel about that? And I'm like, <laughs> pretty good, actually. <laughs> so uh, so um, that's, that's how it started. And then when we started, the, but the other thing was, was kind of like accidental really, because I had been using flat wound strings and I'd been using the Fender Bassman amp with the treble turned up because I like the way it sounded. Now I've been yeah. using a pick and I used a pick for two reasons. One was I like the sound of it. But the other reason was I'm not very far, fast with my fingers. fingers. Yeah. I'm, I'm just not that fast. So some of the songs, especially some of the newer ones he was presenting, I was like, there's no way I could play that with my fingers. Yeah. So I just used a pick. And so in, in it, the, 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 the idea of the bass being up front was completely intentional and planned and uh, but but the sound was was kind of a happy accident because that was the sound I had at the time, and when we went in the studio in '78 and recorded "Look Sharp," um, the the producer picked up on that right away, and he he um, yeah he encouraged it and and kind of mixed the record was mixed with that completely in mind. You know? That's so great. I mean. <sighs> Thank, thank goodness, right? Because if if it, if it were another producer, oh, the 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 bass can't be featured, right? I mean, somebody could have like kiboshed it, you know, the vision. Somebody could have, you know, I know. You know. I know. I, it really could have. It it could have gone either way. But the uh, 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 to David Kirschenbaum's credit, he he recognized the strengths of the songs and the songwriting, and he actually didn't want to change too much about the demos. Yeah. He really didn't. He just wanted them to sound more polished. Um, and instead of a, a, a Fender Rhodes, you know, there was a real electric, uh, there was a real, sorry, a real grand piano, right. um, you know, things like that. So, yeah. um, but um, I, I think, you know, I mean, if you could hear those demos, you'd realize that not a lot was changed in terms of arrangements. It was really just in terms of the sound. The do, you, do you, do you, do you still have, in your personal collection, those demos are, are they on cassette tape or? Yeah. I, I actually took the I, I took the precaution of bouncing them to digital format. Oh, smart! Yeah, they, but they still sound very analog because unfortunately the tapes were 
a lot of hiss. Deteriorated, but yeah. but you can still hear them, you know. Yeah, I, I listen to them every now and again. There's a couple of songs that didn't make it. I get a kick out of listening to those. Nice. I know no one will ever hear those. Yeah. So why know. don't you tell us? You you told me a story once of this, and this is the first I had heard of it, and later playing, you know, professionally, uh, I I got used to punching in. But you told me a story where the whole band punched in on one of Joe's songs. Oh, it was on Look Sharp. It was yeah. on the song Look Sharp. And since you brought it up, I can you can hear the punch. You can definitely hear it. Yeah. yeah. But before that, I mean, maybe look, can, can we just assume that there are some people listening that maybe are not familiar with um, what punching in is, number one, but also... Right. Um, would you say, would you agree that punching in the, the entire band, even though it's doable, it's would, would be kind of rare, right? Oh, would yeah, you, definitely. Uh, Although I have done it since then. Yeah. But, you and, know, they, they always say that the hardest thing to punch in is drums because there's always things that are ringing like cymbals. Yes. That, so a punch in would be ideal in a spot where there's dead silence. Just to, even if a split second, you could do it. So so can you, yeah, tell tell us about it and... and um. Maybe may, maybe explain to some folks what 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 the punch what the concept of the punch is you know well the the the, the song in question looks sharp there's a little drum solo to, uh, in the middle of the song uh, it, and and it's tricky you know it's got a tricky little bass drum part and Dave played it Dave could play it in his sleep but because we were in a recording studio I think maybe he he psyched himself out and he didn't he didn't play it quite as well as he you know the other nine times out of ten so the producer said how about we punch that in and dave said okay so punching in means you know you stop the recording at a certain point and you pick it up live you know so usually punching in is is an individual person like the, mm -hmm. the bass player or or the vocalist or something and it's very common practice but to punch a whole band in is is pretty risky. It's it's risky, you know. Yeah. Uh, especially if if you've got two thirds of a really great take, you're taking a risk that you might ruin that if this yeah. doesn't work out. But we did it, and um, you know, you've got me thinking about it. I don't know if it was a punch in or if it was an edit. Oh wow! It might have just been an edit. Now I'm thinking about it. But I, what I do remember is that the tempos of the two edits were not because we weren't playing to a click track. Yeah. So the tempos were there was a, a very tiny variation, and I think that the 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 the, the cut they used they cut it. Yeah, the, yeah, it was a cut. The, 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 they used a different track that was very slightly faster. Uh huh. And I noticed it straight away. And, and when, you know, they spliced it together. So they take the tape and they cut it and then they join it together, you know. And I mean, and it, most people wouldn't notice it, but I felt like it was very obvious at the time. And the song goes at that point, the song goes right into a piano, like a piano riff. Right. Um, Joe yeah, plays these so. uh, like quarter note triplet things, you know, before he goes back to his vocal. Right. I think so. Yeah, I'd yeah. have to listen to it again. But yeah, <clears throat> I mean, it, it, it's it's a definite moment in the song. And uh, there's a lot of, a, a lot changes at that moment. And yeah, I just remember thinking, well, we're in a professional studio. Well, let's just record the whole track again. You know, yeah. what do you have to do? Because I remember thinking everyone's, it seemed really obvious to me. And I thought everyone would notice that. But, you know, time goes by and I listen to it now and I don't always notice it myself. So. 
Yeah, as, as a matter of fact, I don't think I, the, the tempo differentiation, I don't think I ever picked up on. I'm sure oh. if I go back and listen to it now. Go back and listen, you'll hear it, yeah. <clears throat> but, um, um, but that was one of those things. We, you know, we'd never done anything like that before. We'd never, well, even though we'd been in a couple of nice studios before, we'd never, you know, punching in and editing using a razor blade, which is what they used yeah. to do with tape. You know, this was all, that was all new to us, you know. Um, in fact, I, I just a very quick anecdote. Um, there was a piece of outboard equipment in the control room, and we were asking Kirschenbaum, like, what is, what is that thing, a harmonizer? What does that do? And he said, oh, it changes the pitch of an instrument in real time. And that was like, wow, this is 1978. So this yeah. was cutting edge. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, you could, you could it, like if something's out of tune, you could use that and just, you know, tweak it. And somebody said, well, if you put it on the vocal, could you make the vocal like out of tune or, or in tune or out of, and then, so, yeah, right, in tune. And then somebody said, well, what if it was already in tune? Could you make it out of tune? And we all laughed. Yeah. And Joe was going in to do a, a, a vocal part. And so we arranged to put the harmonizer on Joe's vocal and make it flat so that when he came in to listen back, <laughs> he would hear it. It was like a practical joke. You know? <laughs> so he would sit down and listen, and that's what happened. So he came back in and he sat down and we were all trying so hard not to laugh. You know? And they played it back and it was just like painfully flat. Yeah. And we're all we're looking at Joe out of the corner of our eye. And, you know? and Joe's wondering why. How, how did this goes, happen? Whoa, fucking hell. I'm really <laughs> flat on this one. And we all just exploded. You know? <laughs> and he looked at us and then he realized that we, and he, he was all pissed off. And he ran out. He exited the studio. You know? So That's we never funny. did that again. But it was, it was funny at the time. <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah. So you guys, I mean, you, you guys were a, a hit here in the, in the States. I mean, crazy like you know number number one hits um i'm, I'm sure touring uh you number were headlining on, on certain charts i mean we weren't number one on the billboard hot, hot under and everything but i mean you know with the song the record the album i think was top 10 i think yeah. it, it was yeah we got a lot of huge amount of college radio play and um we yeah we did well and then the next time we came around we were playing bigger venues you know um and and um yeah it just it, it the, the 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 train kept rolling you know for uh for a while for a couple of years there that's great i mean what a what a great band right it was you guys was, you guys were high energy killer killer band so i know that there were a couple albums maybe one album before night and day that was sort of a transition album correct but but um night and day was in, in my view was um, you know, sometimes when, when an artist makes, makes a change in sort of style and presentation, it's a, it's a complete flop and night and day worked like I know. really, really worked nicely. Like um, jazz, Latin um, rock and, you know, rock, pop music, so different. good songs. Oh, yeah. So, different. so yeah, thought, I actually thought it was commercial suicide. And I heard yeah. the demos, I thought these songs are really good, but this is taking a big leap of faith that your fans will follow you here. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know if it would happen. And so tell us about, I mean. Well, Dave, the, the fabulous Dave Houghton, the drummer that you, that you admire so much, 
But that band lasted for three albums. Then Dave left the band for personal reasons. One of the reasons was actually um, stage fright. He yeah. suffered terribly from performance anxiety, just debilitating. And he just, you know, and the trouble was we were playing to bigger and bigger audiences. And uh, so it, it, it was getting worse. And so he, you know, he left the band. And we did uh, an album called Jump and Jive, which was sort of like a digression. Joe wanted to just have some fun and not find a replacement for Dave straight away. So we did this 40s, 50s jump blues. Yeah. With with a with a horn section and no guitar player and 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 I really liked that album too you know yeah that was a lot of fun that, that was, was in fun. that was an album that where where my parents knew a lot of the songs you know I would play right, my right, my, right. my dad would be like oh that was a hit and you know forty forty seven right you know? yeah um that was a lot of fun to do that and and I I wondered exactly where, <clears throat> what was going to happen after that though because and then Joe was playing me these demos and I think these songs are great but. They, they were so very different from the first band and there was no guitar and there were these Latin rhythms. And, you know, I, I really thought, wow, I wonder if anybody's going to get this, you know, maybe I kept having these very, I mean, I'm not a negative person by nature. I'm sure you could attest to that, yeah. but I was thinking the party's over. Yeah. This is not, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one's going to, no one's going to dig this, you know? And so, but, but we still had a budget. We still had a record label. And we recorded night and day in New York City, and um, we had some a uh, couple of excellent percussionists on it to give it some authenticity. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and then it came out, and it just did incredibly well right from the get go. Was moving out the the, the like Stepping the out. first the oh, I'm sorry moving out stepping out Mo moving out is Billy Joel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Step it out. Was that the first single, or were there other singles that had come I out? I think it was the first single, and they yeah. had a they had a video as well. So this is also the beginning of the video age. Really. That's what I, I think. Great timing because the video is kind of um, kind of cute in a way. You know, the video video is user friendly, right? right. And the song the song was great. Yeah, and, I remember uh, I was upset that I wasn't in the video. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But. Was this a moment where, like, you know, you know, it's just you and Joe. You were the nucleus of the of the band. I was the right? holdover, as the yeah the press like to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it was a new band. It was a, yeah. it was a six piece, six piece band, five piece, yeah. six piece band, and um, yeah, it was very different. One one of the so we we had a new drummer called Larry, and Larry's also from my hometown, and he was a great drummer and a, and a good friend. And I remember before we, we went to New York to record the Night and Day album, um, you know, Joe, we, we, we'd been toing and froing about the, the Latin influence on these songs. And Joe wanted us to be a little more familiar with, with, with the, 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 the Latin rhythms and the, the, you know, just the whole genre. And up to that effect, he, he sent, uh, this was in the days of the cassette tape, he sent a couple of cassette uh, uh, cassettes to Larry and to me. Uh, 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 they were copies of an album called Understanding Latin Rhythms. <laughs> and it was all these people like, you know, like uh, Ray Barreto and Mongo Santa Maria and mm -hmm. Tito Puente playing the timbales, playing the congas. Um, Talk about the clave. The, 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 the reverse right, clave. 
explaining, the mumble, yeah. Yeah, explaining the, the different roles of the instrument and, and how the, the, you know, the, the merengue and the cha-cha are, are different, you know. And we're listening to this and, and I, I remember, I, I, I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this, the bass never hits one. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh my God, you know. So I was sitting at home listening and I'm like, it was sort of something mystical about it. And then I finally, it like, it finally clicked and I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. But I mean, you know, I think back on that. I think, well, I, you know, like Joe had a, a, a an English bass player and an English drummer playing yeah. these, these kind of esoteric rhythms. Yes, indeed. And there were like a thousand people in New York City that could have played the shit out of that yeah. stuff. And yet he he took a chance. He had real Latin percussionists. Yeah. But he took a yeah, he took a chance. I guess because he knew what he wanted. That's one thing with Joe. He's always known what he wanted. So but it, and it worked. So maybe also that um you know he I'm sure he knew that you could serve serve the song, right? I mean it's one thing about getting a great musician, but you had been with him, you understood where he was coming from in terms of um in terms of writing and so forth. So, you know, I would I wouldn't dismiss it. I wouldn't dismiss your presence, uh, you know. No, I don't yeah. dismiss it. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm very grateful for that loyalty as well. But I, and I think that he trusted, yeah, right, like you say, he trusted that I could interpret his wishes onto, onto, onto tape, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it did, it, it worked out, you know. I mean, uh, yeah, but it was a big, it was a big change. Yeah. What it a great a huge change. I would recommend that if any of, of course all of Joe's albums, but um and primarily for, for me as a drummer because they feature you and the bass is so prominent and Graham plays them plays uh so musically and also serves the song. But night 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 and day is just a great it's fun to listen to. Uh it's I, another I, great collection of songs. Yeah, I don't even think when when I when I you know I bought the album and, and listened to it. And I remember the other albums I was listening to were like Missing Persons. And, you know, I don't know, you know, st stuff like that, like of, of that time. It was still of rock. You know, it was yes, still but, but it didn't, it, the night and day did not strike me as being odd or like, uh, like a weird presentation. It just fell right into my collection. You know? Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad yeah. to hear you say that. You know, I remember the, 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 the press jumped on the fact that there was no guitar. Yeah, was, they sort of obsessed about that. Like, didn't what, need it. What do you got? What do you got against guitar players? It Joe? didn't need it, you know. No, no, he, he wasn't hearing it. So. Yeah, um, we have a lot. We could we could probably talk for hours, but I do want to talk about um, your your upcoming book. You have a you've yes. written a book, and well, thank you. Yes, well, I haven't finished it yet, and actually, this is good. This is good that we're gonna we're gonna just mention it because. Uh, I think I need the motivation to finish the dance. Yeah. No, you tell us, I mean, tell us what you got so far. Tell well, us, I, or tell us what you're going for, or, um, you know, it's, it's just a memoir, but I, I I'm, you know, I'm, I, I think I have some good stories to tell and, and there, there's, there's stuff in there that probably people wouldn't, well, you know, I, I got the idea to write it after my mother died because when, when my mom died, I, I had a couple of weeks with her while she was fading away from kidney problems. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was basically taking notes as she was 
reminding me about all these things that happened to her when she was an evacuee in London in the 30s at the beginning of the war and, and uh, you know, relocating to the south of England. You know, just, and I was, I, I, I wanted to write it all down for, for posterity. And yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed the process. And by the time I had written that down after she died, I thought, you know, I should do that because my life's been pretty interesting. And I imagine that my, if I have any descendants, you know, if my kids ever have kids, yeah. they might be interested. Absolutely. And um, so I started doing that and I, I did it rather in a rather boring kind of presenting the facts kind of way. And at some point I thought, you know, what if somebody were to read this that that didn't really know me very well, you know, like, how am I going to engage that person? Maybe I should try and make this a little more interesting in the way I'm presenting it and the way I'm writing it. And so I wrote a chapter with that in mind and all of a sudden it was really good fun. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I basically had to go back and rewrite everything I'd written up to that point, you know, but, but it's just been a joy to do it. And if nothing comes of it, it's just been a pleasure to do it. Um, I'm, I'm probably about 85% through. Um, I've written, yeah, I've written a lot. And it's, yeah, like I say, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a joy. And I realize I've had a very charmed and, and pretty interesting life. Um, I, I'd say so. But I, but I have to say something else as well. You know, a, a few years ago, I was helping a relative move and you know, I was carrying a box of books and on the top was, a, was Eric Clapton's uh, autobiography. And I, you know, so I said to my friend, did you read that book? You know, I bet it's interesting. And I remember they said, yeah, except for, you know, that, all that stuff about when his kid dies, kind of a drag. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, you know, if you write the story of your life, there's going to be some, it's not all going to be highs. There's going to be, yeah. you know, no, I mean, you know, life, life is tough. Yes, the happy bits yeah. are the bits you, 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 that keep you moving forwards, you mm -hmm. know, but there's, you know, and so sure enough, I mean, I'm writing this book and there's some parts of my life that have been very uh, difficult to say, but I mean, everybody's life, not yeah. just mine, you know, but uh, I, you know, you, if, you, if you're going to write a memoir, you can't just cherry pick the good bits, you know, yeah. you got to put it all in because it's all, that's all. It sounds like there's um, it's there's a catharsis, right? You're um, but you're but you're find you're not only finding your voice, but you're, but yes. you're um, you know, it's well, I, I had to stuff write, is coming out, you know. Specifically, I had to write about about uh, my firstborn son's suicide in 1998. Oh my goodness, which which is still probably the most awful experience I've had to undergo. Not as uh, not as awful as his experience, but yeah. nonetheless, um, you know, uh, uh, what am I going to not write about that? You know, right. so, and I I also think that talking about that stuff is I don't know it's useful for me to write about it. Maybe it's useful for someone else to read about it. I don't right. know. I hope so. Uh, I'll 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 say so. Graham Graham, are you still there? Yeah. Okay, hold on. Still here. I I for some reason. I lost you. Can you see me? Yeah, nothing changed. Oh, darn yeah. it. Okay, sorry about that. Um, well, Graham, no, I, I, I definitely want to read this, and um, 
I click something because I see that the meeting time is winding down. Um, okay. And uh, but I, I did I did want to touch on your book because I I think you know this is um I I've known you for some time but I feel like we've talked uh, uh and 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 I mean this sincerely and genuinely but you know if I've every time you tell me some of these stories I feel like I want to know more you know like I want to I kind of want to be there you know uh in 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 the in the situation you know so I I would I, I would welcome a book and I would encourage you to finish it. And, and you, you have a, you have a lot to say and um, you certainly made major mark as a musician, as a world-class musician. And I kind of yeah. hate that kind of hate that term world-class musician, but you know, no, you're, you're a freaking great, great bass player, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure you've inspired a lot of drummers too, you know, to, yeah. to play drums. So um well, I hope so. I feel like I feel like who who wouldn't want to read your book, you know, mm. and you know, with with all the stories in it, with all of the uh, life, with all of life's happenings, you know. Right, right, right. So, um, well, I'm 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 trying to make it so it's it's uh, it's a fun read that it's, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, yeah. I'm just I'm 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 enjoying doing it, and I think. Uh, I've, I've had a couple of uh, people reading it for me, like my wife and my daughter. Yeah. I encourage them to be brutally honest. And of course. They are. They're pretty brutally honest. Yeah. Actually, which is good. And, uh, you know, I, my goal at the moment is just to finish it because I feel like I've, I've come this far, you know? So I yeah. just got to finish it. Well, we can't, we can't wait to, wait to read it. Can we, let's, let's put a part three on the books for sometime soon. And okay. We can, yeah, we can do we can that. Catch up. We can yeah. we could talk about some of the other artists you worked with after Joe. I also had in some notes here that we could talk about your role as a producer and, and you know how you how you know how that takes you out of that rhythm section function. You know. Yes. So yeah, um. Of course, yeah. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna cap it off here, Graham. I want to thank you so much for for the, for this chat. This was amazing. I've really been looking forward to this. Good. Yeah, it was fun, Brian. It's always good to, to, to talk to you. Um, so we're going to say goodbye, Graham. And thanks again. And we'll see Reservoir. you soon. Well, that does it for us here at Friends in Music with Brian Doherty. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you soon. <laughs>